This is the final word, Storytime. Storytime 98, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins coming to you from the City of London, the normally temperatured City of London as it now is. Storytime 98, this is our uh, our wander through cricket history. It's not going to be the big revisit episode, mostly because uh, Winnie Collins has chicken pox and thus has required more time than would be consistent with trying to put together a giant revisit show. So we're going to have a slightly different show, well, a a normal show and maybe a shortish one for Storytime 98, probably the big revisit show for 99, and then we're going to have to think of something to do, Adam, to mark the 100th Storytime. Yes, hi, Jeff. So, yeah, we're getting some feedback on what we should do for Storytime 100 on Discord. Mm -hmm. So Richard Jansmore, who you met, Jeff, a couple of nights ago in the pub, and he kindly supplied me with some cream for Winnie's chicken pox that you mentioned before. (laughs) He he wants us to invite all previous hosts to submit nerd pledges to us, uh, and then we can listen uh, to the favourite stories that have been told. So I I guess that that, that could work, uh, where we get Mm -hmm. Barat, Fidel, Ben, Norcross, Izzy... Roller, all to send through a pledge that we then go and solve. And maybe you and I can do a pledge that we solve for each mm-hmm. other. The issue might be the revisits. They might get in the revisit spiral and we could be still uh, <laughs> talking about Izzy's number in two months' time or something like that. But I like where you're going, Richard. Uh, yeah, look, it's creative. Um, Anna Collins has suggested that every answer has to relate to 100 or a multiple of 100. Um, <laughs> this, this is this this seems like we are increasing the degree of difficulty. Um, but you know, ambition has has never been something we've been short of that's, on this show. That's true. And, and Alex Brown wants us to choose random numbers and have people try and guess them on YouTube Discord Live. If not for oh, the yeah, fact, turn it back, turn it yeah. back to the audience. Okay, we do all the solving for you. Now you're going to do the solving for yeah. us. If not for the fact that this will almost certainly be recorded uh, as I'm about to leave the country to go on a brief holiday and you're in the middle of the Commonwealth Games, I don't think that'll be quite viable. Um, But I like where you're going. More to that, um, there's been a fair bit of feedback wanting us to do another one of those uh, sort of Zoom interview style shows where everybody watches on. I'm open to that. I reckon that was good Mm -hmm. last time. I think it was the Stuart McGill interview. That was kind of a a pandemic-y sort of thing that we did and thought yep. that'd be... I think Damien Fleming we did in similar circumstances. But, yes, yes. Um, maybe the, the next time that we're doing an interview that, that needs to be on Zoom because we're not co-located and we can try and do it that way and, and bring everyone in and have a bit of a sort of a, a final word Zoom social, turn the clock back to 2020 afterwards. Mm-hmm. We're actually having another final word social tonight. We're going to meet the uh, those who weren't around on Tuesday when, when it was extremely hot. They're going to come out uh, tonight to the Fentiman uh, in in Kennington. Well, I think, I suppose that would be Kennington and enjoy a couple of beers. So yeah, that's all being organised on Discord and part of why we're here. Part of why we're here. Yeah. Discord is a chat page. If you don't know what that means, that's, uh, it's linked to Patreon and the people who support the show and, and all of that. So if you go to patreon.com slash the final word, you should be able to start figuring things out from there. Uh, the internet, it's a, it's a curious <laughs> place, Adam. You just sent me a link to some yes. list of cricket podcasts which seems to be laboring under the um 
misapprehension that we are former professional cricketers, which is very much not the case. Yeah, that's right. It's this Techno Sports Indian website, which is to, you know, declaring us as one of the best 10 cricket podcasts in the world. And as ever, better be, to be on there than, than not to be on there. So no dramas on that front. But it does describe us as um, two former professional cricketers, uh, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. By contrast, the Mark Wood and Miles Jupp podcast which is called middle stump umpire they say this podcast is hosted by two of the most knowledgeable and passionate cricket fans out there mark wood and miles Jupp. so we're getting called pros while mark wood has been um reduced to a passionate yep. cricket fan I, 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 we've had a role reversal there mm, he's been benched isn't it it'd be middle please umpire wouldn't that be what it's called so they so maybe the website's got the name of the podcast wrong as well oh okay yeah, maybe i've written it down incorrectly it's entirely possible that i've um taken that down wrong either way uh yes uh, those those lists do the rounds every podcast had some version of oh very knowledgeable hosts and mm. excellent guests and um if, if you if you're into your cricket content this one's for you it's clearly one of those um sort of aggregator seo things isn't it oh uh, well yeah it's like one of those things where it's like information about uh, adam collins you know uh, height uh, weight uh we, we- annual income <laughs> You know, uh, we to do that, status, we? didn't we? We, we found that, didn't we? I don't know whether we've actually gone through it in great depth. Remind me for next week. I'll pull up the one that um, that goes into great detail about my life, my supposed life, and whether I've had affairs or not, um, and whether I have <laughs> multiple children, and what my net worth is, and mm. where I went to school. Some of that information has just been lifted from Wikipedia. Other bits and pieces are completely fucking wild. Um, Mel Farrell <laughs> brought my attention to it initially that there are these websites that. Um, Oh, I'm sure she has hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Basically, yeah. if you're a, a woman on television or on any sort of visual medium, then you end up with hundreds of these websites, which are all like purporting to tell your shoe yeah. size and your, your, you know, uh, whatever kind of stuff that they can that, that some weirdos might be searching for, where they're like, "What size Adam Collins' feet?" You know. Um, <laughs> well, I can tell you, listeners, I'm a US 17, so you know. Yeah. <laughs> if that gets any motors running out there, well. Good luck to you. I'm a, I'm a solid 11 in most places. Mm. But, yeah, I think the line read exactly, he isn't known to be having any extramarital affairs, but we're not sure or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I sent that to Rach immediately saying, have you been briefing these guys? Um, <laughs> hey, so uh, before we get into the new numbers and, and all the rest of it, there was some lovely feedback, again, on Discord to Lee Geldard's number that we did on the weekly show, Jeff, which was 248. Your answer went to the 248 that Dino made against Warwickshire. Uh, in a tour game in 1989 and you went through the entirety of the tour and where it started uh, the Duke of Norfolk's 11 but Mel Shawley said that that Warwickshire game that Dino made his 248 in changed her life I was there on my own on one very overcast morning and met some Aussies who were on the trip of a lifetime following the tour it sowed the seed that led to me spending my gap year in Australia for the 1990-91 Ashes that would never have happened if I didn't decide to go and watch Warwickshire and Australia sat where I did or wasn't hungry because one of them offered her a sandwich, which is the reason why she decided to talk to them. So she often looks back on that day uh, as, as being a, a bit of a turning point for her fandom in cricket, which I think is pretty cool because that's kind of led her to us. And it also, I think that tour led her to meet Brent Simmons, who's another listener yes. who also wrote in saying it was interesting to recall the Duke and Duchess of Norfolk's 11s, which started the international tours. The Duke was probably oh, more yes. interested in horse racing than cricket. 
Yes, this was the, the Duke, I assume, that the fixture was named after, sort of in the, in the 1900s. But, yeah, very much upper class. Uh, he was the 16th Duke of Norfolk, named Bernard Fitzalan Howard. Um, you know, military service with horses. He was in that part of the military. Uh, later, he was the Agriculture Secretary for Churchill in his... Uh, cabinet. I assume that would have been the, the post-war government after he knocked off Attlee. He organised the coronation of King George VI, Elizabeth II, the current Queen, and the funeral of Winston Churchill. And between times, in the huh. middle of all of that, he was the tour manager for the MCC when they came to Australia for the Ashes in, right. in 1962-63. So a deep interest in cricket, but yes, presumably horses as well, given his other, other interests there. So basically he was an events manager. Like yes. if you were alive today, he'd be organising a promotional event for like V Energy Drink or something, <laughs> you know, in, in one of these. As long as he can get us five minutes with the talent, I don't care. <laughs> and, and the horse stuff. It reminds oh, me of that. Speaking of, Jeff, a- I had a message from one of these guys yesterday. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll show you our working here, audience, lovely dear listener. We occasionally get messages or, or emails from PRs, from public relations who, who are trying to, push products and, and talent onto us. And for the second right. time in about a month, I've had Chris Gale pushed on us. And I've said, I'm very open to doing an interview with Chris Gale. In fact, I'd love to do an interview with Chris Gale. And they keep trying to push me about what it'll be about. And I'm like, it'll be about, it'll be a retrospective on his long uh, involvement in professional cricket. I'm desperate for him to sign up because he did one of these with Jim Wallace in Wisden mm. in the magazine a couple of months ago. And Jim went straight to it and, and got cracking on on what happened with the Don't Blush Baby scandal and all the rest of it. And Monty Panesar was his um, media manager, was Chris Gale's media manager. So I'm, I'm hopeful that um, this, uh, I'm just reaching out, hope you're well style email from the PR I got yesterday can lead towards <laughs> you and me grilling Chris Gale at some stage about uh, some of the stuff that he wouldn't like talking about. Ah, well, grill the Duke of Norfolk about what he was up to with the horses. <laughs> you know, who knows? Who knows? Uh, we had a, a message in as well from John McFeet, and I'd like to send a big cheerio out to John. He's been a long time listener and pledger and, and supporter, and, and he's doing very poorly at the moment. His uh, health is going really badly. So, just wanted to say hello, John, and that we're we're thinking of you out there on the other end of the microphones. Yeah, and, and he added that his most recent nerd pledge chef and we'll do it as a revisit here off the top um uh, it was 185 uh, you went down the path of talking about one of uh, the red path hundreds and john just solved it for us and said it was the, the highest first class score of south australia's neil danzy who's a quite a big name in south australian cricket uh, neil not a danzy he played um SANFL football and, and sack of cricket side by side on the way up he was a teammate of bradman's in fact he was uh he was the last man to bat with Bradman in a proper game. So 1949, club cricket for Kensington, which is the club that Andrew Faulkner, our former colleague from the Australian newspaper, I say former colleague, he's still a colleague, but he's no longer working at the Oz. He's just finished the history of the club that he's been writing for like 20 years. Looking forward to, mm. to reading that and getting him on the final word at some stage to talk about it. But yeah, his last proper hit in club cricket, uh, Danzy was down the other end um, and Bradman was out for 38. He made his South Australian debut a year later in 1950. He was a big Big character, Jeff. One of his calling cards is that he was the world's fastest eater. Mm. I'd like to take him on on that front. And a year on from that, he did make that high score of 185 against Queensland at the Gabba, one of his 18 centuries for South Australia. Played in the Lancashire League. Then he was a major administrator in cricket and football after retiring in 1967 from grade cricket. Um, he spent 25 years on the Sacker board, known as the patriarch of South Australian cricket. To this day, the, the sort of the, the South Australian Sheffield Shield Best and Fairest is known as the Neil Danzy Trophy. And he's still mm. going strong. 
strong at 94 years of age. He celebrated uh, that birthday earlier this month. So if he wants an eating competition at 94, I'll take him on. Wow. Could we – so he's still kicking yeah, at 94. Yeah. Could we get him into the Nathan's hot dog eating competition? <laughs> you know, with uh, – there are a few. There's, there's the really skinny Japanese fella who yeah. can just somehow like eat his entire body weight in hot dogs. I mean, there are some real some real workers in, in the hot dog eating world. They've developed the new technology with the, the jugs of water that they dunk the rolls into so they can inhale them down faster. I mean – it's an extraordinary field of human endeavour. Yeah, I I, um, I tried to enter a hot dog eating contest about a decade ago in uh, the mm-hmm. Bethnal Green Working Men's Club, actually, Saturday night. <laughs> all the cricket club <laughs> mates were down there and I tried to stuff the ballot, unlike me to do that. Uh, there was a... Um, <laughs> don't refer me to way back. Uh, <laughs> Adam Somurek was working <laughs> on yes, your hot dog yes. campaign. Oh, up there, there are some magnificent <laughs> quotes in that uh, in, in, the, in the bugged call. It's worth reading the IBAC report just for some of the um, the extracts from from bugged mm. calls. Anyway, uh, there's one I particular... I particularly point. liked the bit where he said, I, felt ex- I feel exonerated. I felt <laughs> and exonerated. The chair of the committee was like, just to be clear, you have not been exonerated <laughs> in any way. <laughs> yeah, Adam is truly one of the worst human beings I've ever met in my life, believe me. Um, the... Uh, I'm not surprised this has happened to him. Uh, not a moment too soon. Uh, the um, uh, Where are we? Where, what was I talking about? Hot dog eating. Bethnal Green 2012 yep. in the Bethnal Green Working Men's. And uh, I stuffed the, the, the barrel because they were pulling names mm-hmm. out to decide who was going to um, appear. And I told pretty much everyone in my phone at the time, better fucking get down here. It's my night. I'm definitely yeah. going to be a starter in this comp and I plan to win. Sadly, I didn't get pulled out, so I had to watch. <laughs> the winner got 12 down. This is before I you know, stopped eating okay. meat, so I suppose I, I wouldn't be so good these days, but dare to dream. Dare to dream. And, and maybe if we can't get uh, Nodder Danzy onto the official Nathan's, we could start our own. If, if you recall on the 2016 Sri Lankan tour where some of the Sri Lankan commentators were convinced that Nathan Lyon and Nathan Coulton Isle were brothers, they yes. were the Nathan brothers. Yes. If we could get them to sponsor a hot dog <laughs> eating competition in Australia, the Nathan's hot dog eating competition, get Nodder Danzy into the fray yeah. and see if he's still got what it takes. There's something here, isn't there? Let's speak to Nathan Coulton Isle on the podcast at some point and see whether he's keen. I, I reckon yeah, I can we'll twist his arm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, Jeff, let's get into the uh, the main part of the show and let's do it by the medium of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. It is the game of the final word, the game that we play with all the lovely people on the internet. Here is how it works. It's a reverse quiz. Uh, there are people out there and they fund the show. Bless them. They are gracious. They are wonderful. They're the reason that we're here. And they do it by sending us in contributions. But those are not normal denominations that you might find in your wallet. Those are very specific denominations. Dimmies and Forges spotlight sale kind of denominations <laughs> because those numbers relate in some way to cricket and we have to work out what it is. For instance, first cab off the rank this week, a new pledger, Henry Branson, who not only sent through £7.99, so 799 is his number, the decimal point could be anywhere or not there at all, but he also let us know that he didn't actually have an answer for 799 He just sent it through because that was the price of a book that he found on the internet about an innings played in the 1930s by a guy called Ted Allitson that you spoke about on the show, Adam, and he wanted you to have this book. And so I subsequently bought the book for you and sent it to your house and you now own the book, which costs 7 99 And so Henry said, here's the 
book. Here's the link, and I'm sending you $7.99 so you can have the book. So effectively, Henry bought you the book, and then he said, go and find a cricket number for $7.99 and tell me what it is. So the field is yours. <laughs> yeah, so it was in 1911 uh, where Ted Allison uh, did his finest right. work um, against Sussex at Hove where he yeah, scored 189 runs in 90 minutes and 142 of those in 40 minutes, which... Uh, um, as we've kind of gone through a couple of times now, will never be beaten. And I have read the book now, Jeff. It wasn't a particularly long read. It was about 45 pages mm-hmm. long by John Arlott. And it was um, it brought the whole thing to life and brought Allotson's life um, through the pages nicely, as you'd expect from John Arlott. And I love this from Henry as well, because it doesn't really matter what I say here. Um, it, it's going to be correct. It's not like a lot of the free hits that we have. And we'll have a few today when we're fairly sure we'll be going back to them in revisits in weeks yeah. to come. Uh, but this, Henry, uh, will be one and done. So, as is often the way when prepping for story time, it's educative for us as well. Now, I didn't think I'd ever heard of Muhammad Nazir uh, when this came onto my uh, radar around 799. But I realised I had seen his name and, and I, it became obvious to me why as I went on and dug deeper. So he was an accomplished first-class cricketer, 826 wickets at 19 between 1964 and 1988. So let's get that clear. Very good cricketer, off-spinner, long career, did plenty of good work. But five years into that career, he's called up to the test team for Pakistan at Karachi against New Zealand. So October 1969. Uh, Pakistan bat first and get a relatively low 220 in the context of that ground, Jeff, as, as we know from earlier in the year, there have been some monster schools tallied at, at Karachi over the journey. Dale Hadley, we were talking about Dale Hadley's brother with Jeremy last week. Um, he took the lovely figures of three for 27 from 17.2. You wouldn't often see that at Karachi from a seamer, but so it was for the New Zealand spearhead at the time. Our man Mo, though, uh, Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Nazir, he was unbeaten on 29 from 96 minutes in the middle. So a great start uh, to his career at number nine. Mm-hmm. New Zealand, in reply, Paddle's got confidence. You yeah. know what they always say about Mohamed Nazir. If he goes well with the bat, he goes well with the ball. You know, he's a real confidence player. And it worked the other way for, for Paddle's bro, uh, who top scored with 56, batting at number nine in the New Zealand reply, getting them to 274. Right. But Nazir, seven for 99 from 30.1 of the best in his first mm. innings as a test bowler. Then the second time around, he makes 17 not out with the bat to set New Zealand 230 for victory. So um, he, in the Go end, on. it's a stalemate, unfortunately. They, they reach 112 for five, but Mohamed Nazir, none for 15 from 14 in the second inning. So effective in the first innings, economical in the second. Only eight bowlers in history have taken eight wickets at the first time of asking. And seven for 99 is the 20th best test bowling figures ever on debut. From there, sadly, not an awful lot in the short term. He took just three further wickets in that series, got dropped from the team. You'd think from from that foundation with runs and wickets that he'd be a bit of a mainstay, but it didn't quite work out that way. Got back around a decade later, took 16 wickets in a series against the Windies in 79-80 when they were obviously very strong. All up, uh, 34 wickets at 33, but never better uh, than his 7 for 99 the first time. And... This is where I remember his name. Uh, He was an umpire in the 90s. I remember him standing in a number of test matches in in the late 1990s, in addition to occasionally popping up on on those lists of best bowling figures on debut and and that kind of thing. Mohamed Nazir, 7 for 99. Wow. So it's a kind of Bill Arlesif sort of vibe. Exactly, yes. Come in, make an impact early, and then nothing much happens after that. Mohamed Nazir, uh, thank you, Henry Branson, for setting us up with that. Thanks, Henry. giving uh, Adam a read that he could enjoy. Jake Cunliffe is our next pledger. He's gone in greenbacks, laid them down on the table <laughs> with a tip. Uh, $6.06, 6 
and this is an open shot. And I think this relates to one of my favourite numbers, Adam. Okay. This was one of those ones when, when I saw this number, I thought, I know what this is, or I know what I want it to be. What I want it to be is a record that still stands to this very day, the most runs ever scored in a Test match series by a wicketkeeper. Dennis Lindsay is the wicketkeeper, ah, South yes. African keeper. And the reason that I thought about this a lot was because in 2013-14 I was closely monitoring the records that Brad Haddon was setting uh, as the keeper in that series. And people might confuse the two records, but what Haddon did was score the record for the most number of runs by someone batting outside the top six. Right. And there are quite a few prolific series by people who batted at seven for a fair bit of it but then went up and batted in the top six at some point and thus they become disqualified so that was the record that hadn't set but if you don't disqualify it based on batting order because Dennis Lindsay spent some of his series at seven and some of it at six he still got the record for the most runs in a series by a dedicated keeper and it is an absolute freak show of a series this one so it's it's 1966-67 Australia's touring South Africa He's batting at seven in the first test. They're five for 41 in Johannesburg, South Africa. Like, they're cooked already just to start off the series. He comes in, he bangs out 69, nice, to get them up near 200. The Australians still get a big lead, a lead of 126 after this. And then Dennis Lindsay rocks up in the second innings and says, oh, yeah, I'll just make 182 from number seven (laughs) in the third innings of a test match. They make 600 plus. They set 495 to win, bowl out Australia, happy days. Right. Then they lose the second test in Cape Town, the South Africans. They're, they're forced to follow on. After they follow on, Dennis Lindsay still makes 81 in the third innings to top score, just to say, you know, I'm still in touch. And then he flips it around in Durban. He makes 137 first up, force Australia to follow on, bowl them out twice, easy win. So they go back to Johannesburg where he makes another ton, 131, Sets up a big lead, should win that match. The Australians, they've batted first, made bugger all, and then they're batting in the third innings. They're eight down, they're still behind South Africa's first inning score, and then heavy rain arrives and washes out the rest of the match and they get saved. And then fifth up, they go to what was Port Elizabeth and uh, what I will approximate now as Eberha, as they've changed the name. This is the one time that Dennis Lindsay doesn't have to do everything. He only makes one run in the first innings. He's not required in the second innings. Graham Pollock makes the runs on that occasion and they win comfortably and they win the series. So a comprehensive sort of series performance. Trevor Goddard, Mike Proctor, Eddie Barlow take all the wickets. Dennis Lindsay also gets 24 catches for the series as well as making 606 runs across five test matches, really across four test matches yeah. because only one of them comes in the fifth to dominate Australia, set up a couple of wins and another match which should have been a win if the rain hadn't intervened. It's an extraordinary performance and it's one that has stood the test of time because nobody's gone past it since. Yeah, and I don't think anyone will. It's one of those that I can imagine a wicketkeeper might go beyond 600 runs in a series because we're seeing more and more keepers batting inside the top six and and sort of playing the fifth bowler, but um, Mm. but not quite like that. Unrelated point, you mentioned the new pronunciation. How did you do it? Did you go, Kweberha? It's... It's it's basically a bear ha. It comes with a, the GQ sound that they write it as is is a click sound, and I oh, know right. that I don't, I don't have the accurate clicks in Isikosa because there are there are three or four different versions of the click sounds that you can make. So I don't know. I, I can't tell the difference between the the different variations of that. But it's it's essentially starting with that click sound and then it's it's b-e-r-h-a so it's okay. a bear it's interesting we're going we're going from the easiest test 
venue mm-hmm. to identify PE. Yeah, PE. <laughs> oh, second test at PE to Clare Beha, which is going to probably yeah. take some um, getting used to. I do love that place, though. I hope. Well, we don't get back mm. there for years, do we? We were going through that no. with, with Roller the other day. I, to, well, it's not even on the future tours, right. so the earliest it would be would be 2026, eight something like that. Yeah. They've, they've, the 25 to 27 one's been leaked and there's no South Africa trip on it, so it'll be yeah. 2028. I think, the yeah, there would have been a world where we might have gone to the women's 19s and the women's World Cup there early next year, but that's looking less and less likely. Why is that looking less mm. and less likely? Because we're having a second baby. We might drop that in there. <laughs> we're having yeah. another baby in January. That's why we're not going. Uh, it's all very low-key second child stuff, but I have mentioned that um, right. on the Discord page. So I can tell the, the community at large that um, we're having a, a little brother or sister for Winnie come yep. January, which... Uh, which will, yes, of course, mean that uh, travelling around, gallivanting early 2023 will be a fraction harder. But we'll, we'll still get to India for at least a little bit, I'm sure. Winifred Mark II um, on, on the way. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re, um, re-put my case for the name of Clarence, both for Clary Grimmett and David Clarence Boone. I think I, well, we're, we're, if, if it happens to be a boy, we're stuffed because we never had a boy's name the first time around. It was like, mm-hmm. we'll worry about that if we need to worry about it. Um, mm-hmm. And we're going to go the surprise route again. We're not going to find out whether it's sure. a boy or a girl. So if it's a boy, I suspect we'll have a, a similar last-minute scramble. Um, so Clarence could be in the frame. I have boys' names I like, all of mm-hmm. which Rach detests. So mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that's tricky. It, it, if it's a girl, we're all set. Girls are much nicer right. names. Yep, yep, because, right, she, she's not going to go for the sort of early 1900s vibes that you like. No. Like something, something related to Clem Hill or... You're close. Yeah, uh, yeah Clem, Clem I, I, like, I like the name Clem. Not so much after Clem Hill, but Clem Attlee. And Rach is like, yep. there's no way in the world I'm letting you name a child after, after, after a prime minister. I'm like, okay, that's, <laughs> okay fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Um, so I, Winston is out. You, won't, you well, can't have no, Winifred and I, Winston. I, I, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's out as well. Uh, I, I, I like out anyway, regardless. I... I also like Nye, like a Nyren, Nye, M-Y-E. Mm. But again, Rachel's no. like, it's, it reads like aneurysm. I'm like, it doesn't read like aneurysm. But anyway, <laughs> that's... Um, so we might have to look further than Wales this time. I, w- I was hearing um, about some of the, the, the chats that were going on at the Eton and Arrow game oh, um, right. because, you know, I'm in London and people talk about <laughs> these things. So there was some sort of like toffee nonsense about singing things and then eaten people saying we sing songs in Latin, you know, and oh then they're gosh. talking about how many prime ministers they've had because, uh, yes. as has been noted, there have been more eaten prime ministers than, like, Labour Party prime ministers yes, in the UK. Yes. So they're, they're calling out to Harrow, you know, 20 prime ministers or whatever, and then the Harrow fellows respond with uh, Winston Churchill, Boris Johnson, <laughs> as in we, we had Winston Churchill, you had <laughs> Boris Johnson. So, you know, as far as, as far as posh comebacks go, not too bad, I suppose. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. Where are we next, Jeff? We're at 2 for 2. 2 for 2. Lewis two for two. Tobia. Lewis Tobia. Um, or Tobia. Tobia, Tobia. What are you going with, Jeff? I'm going to go with Tobia. I'm, Tobia. I, I'm thinking like a Toblerone vibe. Yep. I'm thinking the, the hazelnut, honey, nougat, the pointy peaks of chocolate that remind you of the Swiss Alps. You know, nothing says class especially to a small child like Toblerone. You're like, this is the fanciest stuff they have. This is what they have on yachts, Toblerone.
this is what I want. So I think Lewis Toblerone Tobia with a 242 in British pounds. Yes, real lobster stuffed with taco vibes, the Toblerone. Uh, right. <laughs> um, turkey, turkey stuffed with duck. Yeah. Uh, right, where are we? So, okay, so 242. We've had, we've had this number before and we rattled through some of the great 242s in test cricket. So... Doug Walters against the Windies in 1969. Jeff Ware, 200 in the first dig, 100 in the second dig. We've talked about Ricky Ponting's 242 against India at Adelaide in that extraordinary test match in 2003. So I'll shoulder arms at that. Instead, because it's been a while, play the music, DC. Ted Bowley, a dusty old bastard, born 1890, uh, lost five years to World War One. However, he'd only played one season of first-class cricket to that point, and he'd been sort of okay. around, but anyway. Returns from the war, it's 1920 when they restart first-class cricket properly. He's 30 years of age, he's opening the batting for Sussex down at Hove. Now, I, I say he's a DOB, he goes on to become... Uh, the 242nd Test Cricketer for England. Has to fucking wait, though, sort of in keeping with that era that we've gone through before, the madness of the interwar period. He doesn't make his debut until he's 39, and that's against South Africa for two Test matches at home in 1929, uh, and then he gets three further Test matches in New Zealand uh, in 1929-30 and gets 109 in Auckland. So he can be proud of his five Test matches, I reckon, given his... 39 and 40 when he plays them, averaged 36 and got himself a test ton. It's his only score above 50, but a test ton's a test ton. And it was against the Kiwis in their early days. So 52 first class hundreds, 28,000 runs, 15 seasons where he made 1,000 runs consecutively. So 15 first class seasons on the bounce where he reached 1,000. Um, mm-hmm. And what I liked and what drew me to him was for some crazy records that Ted Bowley still has down at Sussex and one that relates to something we were talking about last week. So in 1921, he put on 385 with Morris Tate against Northants for the second wicket. That remains the, the all-time Sussex second wicket record. Tick, not bad. In 1928, against Gloucestershire at Hove, he hit 280 unbeaten runs in the day, which is the most ever for Sussex in a day of cricket. That included a 368-run first wicket stand with Jim Park Senior, Jeff, who you've, uh, who you've talked about before on Storytime. Mm-hmm. And then an all-timer for Sussex he put on, so breaking the first wicket record that he set in 1928, five years later, 1933, with John Langridge, they put on 490 for the first wicket against Middlesex at Hove. Now, you Jeez. might be thinking, gee, hang on a minute, weren't you guys talking about the first wicket all-time partnership last week we were that was Suckcliffe and Holmes who just one year earlier put on their 554 or 555 which makes me ask right. the question did they not think that they could have they could have broke that record one more session batting together uh, he and John yeah. Langridge could have overtaken the, the controversial uh, numbers set by Suckcliffe and Holmes that l- lasted for about 40 odd years before it was broken uh, in the 60s anyway not to be it still remains the biggest partnership in Sussex history and I think the the fourth or fifth biggest ever in first-class cricket uh, for the first wicket. Ted Bowley stayed on in the game. He was a coach and teacher at Winchester. He died in 1974 at the age of 
84. And there's a lovely quote from R.C. Robertson Glasgow in the obituary talking about his back foot play. I never saw a batsman who played this stroke with his bat and elbow so high, meeting a rising ball which others would leave with tremendous force and hammering it straight or to the off boundary. So uh, that was a sense of the way that Ted Bowley played. Serious cricketer, serious opener for England and Sussex and cap number 242 and now a DOB for us. Dusty old Bowley. Uh, nicely done. Thanks, Chesney. And uh, thanks to Lewis Tobia for sending that one through. Susan Kane is up next. Long-time pledger and supporter on the show. $5.23 in Australian currency. Susan is a very staunch Australian supporter and an enjoyer. And so I did for a minute think that this might also be related to series runs totals, mm-hmm. given I was looking up Dennis Lindsay's 606, because 523, that's the number of runs that Ricky Ponting made in that uh, tour of the Caribbean in 2003. You remember when he was sort of at the height of his powers, mm-hmm. he made 100 in all three of the test matches, made a double in one of them. It's also what David Warner made in the whitewash ashes in 13-14, which is, I always find kind of funny in that context where, you know, people now go, oh, David Warner, no good against England. You know, you're like, yeah, aside from the piles and piles and piles of runs that he's made against them when they come to Australia, yep. which, you know, does does kind of count for something. Given I'd already done a, a run series total, thought I'd look elsewhere. I thought maybe Susan's a Rahul Dravid appreciator because he did great work against Australia and in Australia. And, uh, I mean, you just mentioned the Adelaide Test of 2003, which must be in our top five most talked about yes. test matches on Storytime. It comes up all the time. But here's something I hadn't noticed before, which you might enjoy. The number's 5.23. Raul Dravid's career test average was 52.3. And in that Adelaide Test match where he makes the double ton, India make 523. Uh, it all comes together. But I thought a better link is this. There's only one Australian bowler who's ever taken 5 for 23 in any format of international cricket. And this is a corker. This is Renee Farrell, a swing bowler whose work we enjoyed very much while she was playing for the Australian women's team over a long period of time. Relatively early in that progression, the Ashes Test of 2011 in Sydney, uh, England, they've got a young Heather Knight opening the batting. They've got Charlotte Edwards making an unbeaten 100 in the first innings. And I thought you would enjoy this one, right? Because the Australians are, are behind. They're not doing so well. Elise Perry is batting with Elisa Healy. Perry's at number 10. She makes 17 <laughs> off 90 balls just trying to block it out to support the supposedly better player. Yeah. I mean, who knew at this point that she was going to come on to be like <laughs> the great, the great test player that she is now with her ridiculous record. And Healy gets out. They bat on with the last pair for a little bit and then the Australians decide, bugger it, we'll declare behind. So they're 48 runs behind England's first innings total and they call it off and decide they'll have a bowl. Enter Renee Farrell, who gets Carolyn Atkins out, the opener, um, who you and I have done some work Shaggy. with on radio before. Known as Shaggy Jenny, for, the, uh, for the bandana she wore when she batted. Yep. Jenny Gunn somehow is batting at number five in this test match. I'm not sure how, although she does make a few runs. Um, but Farrell comes along and gets her out eventually. And then the very next over, Charlotte Edwards plays across the line, leg before wicket. Next ball, Catherine Brunt, bowled straight through. Next ball, Danny Hazel, first ball. Renee Farrell's got a hat trick in a test match. Obviously, you weren't there. (laughs) And she's taken four wickets in five deliveries in the middle of this innings. England, all out for 149. The next day, Australia chase, 198. 
three wickets down, a match completely turned upside down by five for 23, including a hat-trick and the extraordinary position of declaring behind during the second innings and then making it into a winning position. It's no wonder that England team of those sort of eras felt like they could never beat the Australians. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was... um that was just kind of at the end, wasn't it, where England had that, that great period of finding a way to win against Australia in those test matches, but and they, they turn a bit of a corner there. Although it must be said, they, they do have that success in Perth in 13-14, in yep. don't they? So the, the series after, but yeah, excellent era. And a number of the players still featuring. So uh, Susan Kane, let us know, 523, thanks for your contribution. My last number today, yes, my last one, is from Rosie Piper. It's a re-up. We've had Rosie on the show before. Uh, this time around, 1040 is the is the number. Now, my first thought was, has a team ever, cause in my previous number, two for two, 242. My head was already in the space of 242. Some people in the past have pledged, you know, six for four and, and, and whatnot. And that's been quite mm-hmm. a clever way of doing it. Well, I thought, has anyone ever lost 10 for none? That's harder to find than you might think. I've asked Andy mm-hmm. Zaltzman to look it up. He's going to send me a message later today when he's back at his computer. Technically speaking, Jeff, as you pointed out, there was a team that uh, lost all 10 wickets without scoring a run off the bat. Um, that was in 2006 in a Yorkshire Village game between Goldsborough Twos and Dishforth. Dishforth bowled them out, or bowled mm-hmm. out Goldsborough in 12 overs. So it was four league buyers and a buy, and that was their lot. A bloke called Gavin Hardesty uh, took seven for none, and presumably the bloke up the other end took three for none, but no one cares about him. Yeah. Ten ducks. I remember it. I remember seeing the headlines at the time. Ten ducks in the innings plus right. a, a few leg buyers or yeah, whatever it yeah. was. Yeah, so the four buyers and, and the leg buyers. So all out for five in that game. So four times in first-class cricket, 10 for 40 has been taken. And I thought that was quite remarkable. Like, wow, four hmm. times. That seems like a lot for considering how infrequently 10 wickets has been taken. But maybe not as remarkable as I thought. So there have been three 10 for 28s and there have been four 10 for 36s. But still, uh, mm. the worst 10 for, if you're wondering, is the 10 for 175, Jeff, that you spoke about a couple of months ago, the Eddie Hemmings playing in Florida in 1982-83 at Sabina Park, of course. If we talk about test matches that get brought up most often for us on this show, the venue that gets brought up, Certainly in the top three would be Sabina Park. He was playing for an international 11 against the West Indies side. He bowled 49.3 overs for his 10 for 175, and that was in an innings of 113.3 overs. So usually you think uh, if someone gets all 10, it's kind of chaos, but... But they've raced through them. Yeah, but it wasn't the case um, yeah. in that. By my quick count off the screen, it's happened 91 times in first-class cricket, including a bloke you might have heard of called John Wisdom, who did it twice. Once for North versus South. Now, that was at Lords in 1850. There's no record of how many runs he went for, just that he took all 10. And that mm-hmm. got me thinking about 10 at Lords. And what do you know? A 10 at Lords was one of the 10 for 40s. Gubby Allen. The most recent of the four, so there was one in 1863, 1906, 1921, and then 1929, playing for Middlesex against Lancashire. If Norcross were here, he wouldn't have us um, celebrating Gubby Allen, the man he refers to as the the Quisling trader. Although I note that when you think about it, Gubby Allen's behaviour in the Bodyline series of 32-33 precedes the the Norwegian trader to the Nazis Quisling. So I think we need um, to to reconsider if if that's how we uh, refer to Gubby Allen in the past. I'll raise that with Daniel down the pub. Mm -hmm. 
I also note that Gubby's middle one of his middle names is Oswald, but we won't, we won't get too deep down Oof. that path. Okay. Anyway, given the era, uh, so mm. right, so it's a cracking story. This ten could 40. be Lee Harvey, could be Mosley. I was thinking the, the latter, given we're sort of talking late twenties, mm. early thirties. Anyway, given Gubby's involved, sure enough, this is a belter of a story, and Abhishek Mukherjee um, has written it up on Cricket Country. So the story I'm about to tell you comes um, largely from Abhishek, who's an excellent historian on the game. It was the fifteenth of June, nineteen twenty nine. And Middlesex were hosting Lancashire at Lords, and Lakes were the team to beat in that era, having won the county championship in, in the three previous seasons. So it's a, a blockbuster clash at Lords. Now, at the time, Gubby was working a morning job. How the fuck did he have time to work a, work a morning job when he was playing like forty games of cricket through the summer? Anyway, that was at Debnams, the um, the, uh, the the department store, which sadly recently went out of business, didn't it? But Debnams is where he worked in the morning and he foreshadowed to the skipper that he might be late and he was late and he was the, you know, the attack leader. So Lancashire walk out to bat and they don't have Gubby Allen to open the bowling. Once he got to the ground and served his permitted time off the field or on the field before they, you know, let him bowl, I guess it's um, one over for every over you've been off or whatever it worked out to be. He bowled a first spell of eight overs, one for 18. Pretty chill. After lunch, Mm -hmm. bit more energetic. Hits the stumps twice in the first over after the long break. A second spell of six overs, two for nine. By T, Lancashire, though, they're going pretty well. 215 for three. So, you know, Lancashire have had the better of the the first two sessions, even if Gubby Allen has three wickets to his name. He's brought on again after the tea break, and he gets on a bit of a roll. Picks up two wickets in a hurry to bring up his fifth, both bowl, then a caught behind. Then soon enough, he overtakes his best first-class figures to that point of seven for 30. In walks Ted McDonald, uh, the great Australian paceman who was playing for Lanks as a professional at the time. He hit him on the thigh pad, and next ball, McDonald, fuming, charged at him. A gubby went wide. The keeper ran up to the stumps and stumped him. Now, that's wicket number nine, and by this stage, people are streaming into Lords. There are 20,000 people there as word spreads that Gubby Allen might be on for a tenfer. There hadn't been a tenfer at Lords since 1906 with another final word fave... Arthur Fielder, A Fielder, who took 10 for there um, some, uh, some 23 years before. He's bowling to a bloke called Gordon Hodson Gubby, and he knocks him over. He's got all 10. That third spell, 7 for 13 from 11.3 overs to make 20.3 overs, 10 maidens, 10 for 40. The last four came in five balls. Lancashire reduced from 215 for three to all out 241. And get this. Nobody has taken all 10 at Lords since that day. It remains the, the best ever figures for Middlesex. Current coach Richard Johnson went close. In 1994, playing against Derbyshire, he took 10 for 45. I think, Jeff, that's a, a story we might have told on, on this show in the past as well. Anyway, uh, that performance helped get Gubby Allen into the test team a year later, made his debut in 1930, played 25 test matches. I didn't realise that he played after the war. So he played three of those test matches in 1948 in the Caribbean when he was 46 mm. years old. Fair fucks doing that, bowling <laughs> seam up at age 46. I couldn't do it when I was sort of 26. I was already broken. And he may not have bowled body line, but he did take eight wickets in the Adelaide Test match, five in the Brisbane Test match, and 21 in that famous series victory for England in 32-33. His best match figures were 10 in the match, again at Lords uh, for 78 against India in 1936. And of course, what he's probably most known for is his massive off-field presence stretched all the way into his 80s, 
for good and bad, light and shade, he was involved in some pretty bad shit, but contributed a lot as well, including as the boss of, of the MCC. Famously lived around the corner from Lords and was always there watching all the way through until he died well into his 80s in 1989. Gubby Allen, the most recent man to take a 10 for Lords 10 for 40 back in 1929. Gubby Allen. I always enjoyed the word Gubby. I don't know what I think that it means. Maybe it reminds me of Gumby and it makes him seem approachable and, and friendly and you know very bendy and all of the rest of it. But Rosie, if you wanted us to do a deep dive on Gubby Allen, your wish has been granted. <laughs> if that was not your number, let us uh, know. Hop on, hop on the Nerd Pledge channel on the chat page and let us know. We've got one more new number. It is for Matthew Jones, who I believe is coming to the London meetup at the pub tonight. He is. And thus, when we see Matthew, he won't know that we've done his number on the show that won't have been released yet. But when he hears this, he will already know that we, we, we already met him. It's very confusing the way time works in this sort of situation. It is. And isn't it funny how time works in terms of messages you get through? I've just received that message from Zaltzman about the 10 okay. for none from Rosie's number. So I may as well do a little addendum here, right? So Go on. It doesn't count as professional, says Zaltz, but it does count as an official women's one-day international. The Maldives last year slumped from six without loss to eight all out. So they lost 10 for two uh, against Nepal in that one-day international. Uh, And then the lowest in in men's cricket, there was an all-out for six or a 10 for six. uh, And that's a couple of times it's played out. That was a a game between Gloucestershire and Northamptonshire in 1907. Mm -hmm. uh, And then a one-day game between Colts and Saracens. I'm not even sure where that is. (laughs) In nine, uh, in 2012, so there's never been a 10 for none in a sort of professional or first-class game, but we right. always have that village in Yorkshire. Colts, Colts and Saracens, I mean, that could be a Sri Lankan thing as well. They've got Saracens knocking about in, yep. in Harlequins and whatnot in, in Sri Lankan cricket, but yes. All right, thank you, Zoltz. Uh, one more number for Matthew Jones. It is $1.32. And uh, just a little note here on cap numbers, your favourite statistical category, Adam. We were recently watching Kusal Mendes play for Sri Lanka, cap number 132 for Sri Lanka. John Gunn, who was cap number 132 for England, debuted in 1901. (laughs) (laughs) So I love that. I love that we talked about Jenny Gunn playing recently, but there was John Gunn in 1901 with the same number as a fellow who is still going around this week, you know, who'll be playing the second test against Pakistan at Gaul in the upcoming few days. So... Fun stuff there, but another cap number 132 for South Africa since we've done a bit of a South African theme today, Xenophon Constantine Balaskis. <laughs> Always a favourite when he comes up. One of yep. the great names just purely on the basis of a great name, an interesting name. Jim Maxwell always likes to bring up Xenophon Balaskis, uh, the the first Greek national to play test cricket. Um, he wasn't born in Greece. He was born in South Africa, but his parents were Greek. They moved out there. They moved to Kimberley where the big De Beers diamond mine was and they opened up a restaurant in true enterprising migrant style. So a Greek restaurant, I hope. Got some good food out there, I hope. Um, (laughs) But he gets into cricket. He's playing first-class cricket locally by the age of 15. So obviously had a a talent for it and and picked it up and it's all about nurture and and not about nature. We, We could have, you know, if things had been different, there could be a great Greek cricket team touring the world and playing test matches and, and we, we would have had great Greek players and we would have been selecting what's the best ever Greek 11 and, I mean, they had all those gods that could surely have had some good cricket players. Mm. So he's a he's a proper all-rounder, Xenophon Belaskis, in that you can't really pick what his strongest suit is. He bats, he makes hundreds, he takes lots of wickets, he bowls leg spin 
And so he plays a couple of test matches by the time he's 20. Doesn't go well, doesn't make any or take any, but he's in there. He's, he's considered good enough to play for South Africa. Strange career, lots of gaps. He tends to play like one or two tests and then have a couple of years in between and um, got injured quite a bit on tour. And so he plays in these bits and pieces. He only gets through nine test matches in all across nine years of playing test cricket. And it's a peculiar career. So the fourth of these tests, Adam, is 1932 in Wellington. He comes out and makes 122 not out, batting at number six to beat New Zealand comfortably. Then he doesn't play for three years. And then in 1935, he's in England. He rips through Yorkshire with the ball in a tour match. And so he gets picked for the test at Lords. And then the pitch at Lords gets destroyed by insects. So it gets like eaten by locusts or right. something like that. It's completely buggered. It's dry and dusty. And so, of course, you know, they want him to play. So the, the leg spinner plays. He takes nine for 103 in the match and South Africa win their first ever test match in England. He plays a few more matches over the next three years, but nothing like this ever happens again. So over the course of his career, nine wickets in that test match, 13 wickets in the rest of his test career. And then in terms of what he does with the bat, he makes that 100 in Wellington, he makes a score of 29, and then every other innings in his career is in single figures. He makes five ducks. So he has these couple of peaks and then absolute dross. He's he's on one of my favourite lists, which is the lowest career batting average for a player to have made a test century. Right. So he's got the fourth worst of all time. He averaged 14.5. So that's only uh, Jerome Taylor, Yassir Shah and Saklan Mushtaq ahead of him or below him, I suppose, on that list with worse career averages. But he does come back and keep playing after World War II in the Curry Cup and he has a season after World War II where he takes 47 wickets at 15 and just has a, a great sort of last burst before he decides to retire from first-class cricket for good. He moved around South Africa a lot over his life, so he ended up playing for five different provinces and eventually lived out his time in Joburg. He built a net in his front yard in Johannesburg and he had players coming by for decades to come to ask him for tips and inspiration and uh, notably he was an influence on John Tracos years later who was another South African spinner of Greek origin who was who who was ushered through by Xenophon Belaskis one of the great stories and one of the strangest careers in the history of cricket South African cap number 132. Yeah one of the great names I mean there's no one with a last name starting with X, who's played international cricket. Or a first um, name. No, a last name. Never been in a last name with X. Right. Uh, I, I don't know how many first names there are, but I'm tipping him up. Okay. You know, he'll be amongst the... There'll be a few Xaviers. Yeah. But I, I can't imagine... You know, he might be able to count it on one hand, possibly. Um, yep. Maybe someone can look that up for us, because I've had a quick Google uh, while we've been talking, and I, I can't find uh, mm. anyone with a, with a first name apart from Xenophon. Velasquez, but mm-hmm. but easily could be a there'll be Xavier's, but beyond there's that a, there'll be a Xavier Doherty and a there's a, a Xavier Marshall, I think. That's right, Xavier Marshall. Be a couple, yeah, yeah, a couple floating around, but not many. Okay, nice place to leave the new numbers this week. As we mentioned off the top, the revisits extravaganza will be story time ninety nine, which feels appropriate before we uh, get to uh, story time one hundred in a couple of weeks. Uh, if you want to be part of the fun here on the final words story time each weekend, our history show. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Send a nerd pledge in. No better time to do it because we've, well, in all the time we've had Patreon, we've we've never been quite so active as we are with the Discord page. So a lot of people have signed up 
because they've heard about us talking about Discord and seen bits and bobs on social media. It is a wonderful place to talk cricket and just talk life more generally. Some of the conversations on there uh, stray far, far, far from cricket and they're all a delight, Jeff. So patreon.com forward slash the final word. If you're an existing patron and you haven't yet jumped over to Discord, all you need to do is DM Jeff or me and we'll send you the link and you can get involved on there. Uh, and we'll keep doing, as we have in recent times, organising catch-ups and drinks and watching cricket together uh, when we can in the flesh now that um, now that we're allowed to do that kind of thing. So patreon.com forward slash the final word. A couple of confirmations of numbers we have got correct in recent times. It's nice to get a few correct. Uh, Michael Fitzgerald says, uh, nailed the Keith Bradshaw pledge, 419. Was indeed the number of runs that Keith Bradshaw made in his first season or uh, his best so, season. yeah. In first-class cricket, which I was pretty happy with as a catch, you know, as, as one that we worked out live while we were still trying to figure <laughs> out how it fitted and, and we eventually got there. He says, uh, good to listen to that and, and a pleasure listening to the Sri Lankan shows. Thanks, Michael. So, Riley Campbell, uh, Jeff, uh, you did a really nice answer around uh, Ash Gardner, the number of balls that she bowled and her Indigenous backstory for 1579. I can't quite remember how 1579 worked out, but, hey, it's there somewhere. It, it, do you remember? It was the number number of deliveries up until the point the pledge was sent in that she bowled <laughs> in one-day international cricket, which was no longer the number because she's played since Got then. It. But I was able to um, retrofit it and, and trace it back. So Riley says, you dug through the stats and you struck gold, Jeff. Fantastic work. My pledge was indeed Ash Gardner. Amazing effort. I was lucky enough to accidentally meet Ash while incredibly hungover in a Newtown terrace a year or two back. Safe to say it was very embarrassing meeting my favourite female cricketer while clutching a bucket and a hydrolite. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there, Riley. Riley, Riley, look, I won't go into any specifics, but I will tell you that over the last decade or so that we've been doing this kind of thing, I have met a number of people who I would have preferred to meet in better states than I was at the time. Let's just put it that way. And Cam again, who I, again, I mentioned this last week. I love the way that he signs off this one word, Cam again. You, Jeff, uh, last week went through Ernie Jones uh, taking on Mr. Sheffield's at 11 and the beard of WG Grace and all the rest of it, seven for 84. Yes, my number was Ernie Jones, a.k.a. Jonah, uh, taking 7 for 84 the day he rained fire against Lord Sheffield's 11 and the legend of the ball that passed through Grace's beard. Thanks for sharing the story of an exciting cricketer from the early days of Test Cricket. A pleasure, a pleasure, Cam, and a pleasure to make this show as it always is. Thanks to everybody for listening in. Uh, this show is on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. It's edited by Dave Collins, uh, and you can be part of it patreon.com slash the final word if you want to send us in a number for us to come around to on the show the stories the tales the wonders of cricket i'm jeff lemon that's adam collins Uh, we'll be back with you in the middle of the week for the weekly show a big interview coming up this week so keep an eye on that and if you haven't caught our interview with laura wolvart south africa's absolute star player um, we had a really good chat with her we we got her to, to open up and she said after the the recording, oh, I was a bit nervous, you know, I, I hope I wasn't too quiet. And we're like, no, no, you 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 told us a story and, and you were willing to get into the conversation. I, I really enjoyed that yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. So that's on YouTube as well. A couple of people have said to 
to us they enjoyed sort of watching the interview and partly because and this might come through the podcast feed I'm, I'm not quite sure whether it was edited out a couple of times when those balls came in our direction she hid under the chair that is in the YouTube feed so if you want to see yep. Laura Wolvart taking a chair and duck and covering as it were then you can watch that on YouTube and yeah all of our social media posts are up on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and we're doing a much better job of that now um, thanks to James Hurley uh, for doing all that work for us and of course thanks to the team at Bad Producer Productions who get us on the park at least a couple of times often three or four or five or six times a week uh, and our editor Dave Collins who's principally responsible for that uh, this has been story time number 98 thanks for listening we'll do it all again next week have a nice weekend See ya. I had to go about